you know, the, the yoke in the first century was a common uh, farming implement. Oftentimes you'd see people using oxen worked fields under the yoke. And the, the term yoke began to be used as a uh, more of just a term of submission or subjection. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, in the first verse, the Apostle Paul talks about bond servants who are under the yoke. He's talking about slaves. <clears throat> they are submissive to their masters. And, and this is something that, that got carried on uh, a lot uh, in the Bible, but also in other areas as well. Uh, there was a story about a general who used uh, the symbolism uh, of the yoke on his defeated enemies. Uh, he had a couple of spears uh, thrust into the ground, and then across these spears he had an ox yoke tied. And he made his defeated enemies pass under the yoke, but they had the yoke tied at such a height that in order to pass under it, you had to bow your head. So it was, it was kind of a, a double uh, illustration there. You're passing under the yoke, but you're doing it with your head bowed. You're being submissive to the one who is victorious over you. Uh, over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is, is telling the people, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is really a really sad book. Uh, and we'll look at that a little bit more uh, just a little later on. But in, in the book of Deuteronomy, you have Moses uh, trying to get across to the children of Israel the fact that they have been rebellious over and over and over again. He knows that he is not going to get to go into Canaan with them. They're about to pass over the Jordan River to go into the land that God had promised to give them, and Moses knows he's not going to go with them. And like anybody, knowing that their time is short, he's trying to get across to them the idea that you need to stop rebelling and you need to yield to God. And he knows it's not going to happen. And again, like I said, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 48, it's talking about all of the bad things that are going to happen to them because of their future rebellion. And it says that God would put a yoke of iron on their neck until he's destroyed you. He said, that's what's going to happen. Now, the term yoke can be used of submission, either a voluntary submission or a forced one. Now, what we've looked at so far, uh, at least, has been a forced subjection. You are being forced to be submissive to someone. You are under the yoke, but it can be used in a voluntary sense, too. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing over there in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden's light. In other words, be submissive to me, but do so knowing that I'm not going to require anything of you that's unreasonable. Everything I tell you to do is for your own good. Now, when you think about the term yoke and you think about the fact that one had to bow their head beneath the yoke, it, it kind of brings to mind the, the opposite end of the spectrum. You have some people who are willing to bow their heads under the yoke and you have other people who are not. And those people are referred to as being stiff-necked. And this is a term that goes way back, and it's still in, in use today. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, again, Moses is talking about 
their, their constant rebellions. He's talking about the fact that if they would do what God said do, he would bless them, but they just don't want to do it. But he tells them, verse 3, he says, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. You know, I, I have thought of a lot of different ways that you could describe the children of Israel. And it was a long time before I decided that really stiff-necked is the one term that describes them best. And that's what Moses is telling them here. <clears throat> he says, look, when you go over into this land, it's not because of how good you are that God is going to drive these people out. It's because of how bad they are. He said, you are a stiff-necked people. And God agreed. In verse 13, it says, Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Moses had been talking just, just before this about the, uh, the events shortly after their ex exodus from Egypt when he has gone up on the mountain to receive the law from God. He was uh, on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he comes down, what does he find? He finds people who have completely departed from God. They've turned completely away. They've had Aaron make them a, a calf to worship. Forty days? Could they not be faithful for 40 days? No, they couldn't. And so he tells them, you are a stiff-necked people. You're, you're almost incapable of doing the right thing. And then later on, in Deuteronomy chapter 31... He tells them, essentially, again, the same thing. In verse 24, it says, So it was, when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. God had told Moses, he said, you need to, to write out a song. And this was something that they were going to remember throughout their history. And here Moses is saying, I want this, this book of the law placed beside the ark as a witness against you. I know what you're going to do. He goes on, verse 27, he says, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Don't you feel sorry for the man? He has put up with these people for over 40 years. And their rebellions were such that of the people that left Egypt that were over the age of 20, 
In that 40-year period while they wandered in the wilderness, all of them died, except two, Joshua and Caleb. Now, you'd think out of, out of all of the people, and numbers vary, but it was a lot of people that came out of Egypt. There's only two of them that could remain faithful. All of the rest of them died in the wilderness, all of those above the age of 20 because of their rebellions. And Moses has had to put up with these people for over 40 years. I mean, you know, when, when you get to be a, a parent, sometimes you see this kind of uh, illustrated in your children. You try to tell them to do the right thing, and sometimes they don't listen very well. I've been told that that's the way I was, but I, I don't believe a word of it. But sometimes it takes a while to get the message through. But eventually, in the case of children, you eventually do. Eventually, at least, you hope that they get old enough that they see the wisdom of the things you've been trying to tell them. In the case of the Jews, that never happened. It never happened. Moses <coughs> says, verse 28, Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. He says, I know what's going to happen. And I know that you people are not going to do what you're supposed to be doing. I know you're not. You're stiff-necked. You refuse to bow your head in submission. And this is something that, that, was, that was really a, a problem with them throughout their entire history. You know, we've been studying the, the, the book of Judges, and what is the book of Judges? But a series of times when they, they rebelled against God, God allowed their enemies to, to put them in subjection. They called out to God. They said, save us. He rises up a judge to save them. They're faithful through the, the lifetime of the judge, and then they turn right around and do the same thing again and again and again and again. All the way through the book of Judges, you find exactly the same thing. <clears throat> and by the time you get into the, the first century, when you look uh, at, at uh, Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen, who's been called before uh, some of the Jews to defend himself against false charges that he's guilty of blasphemy. And he relates the history of the Jews to them. He, he talks about their rebellions. He talks about the times... That, that God has saved them. And he goes on, verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. He says, you're not any different. Through all these hundreds of years, they haven't changed a bit. And the problem with the Jews, and again, you know, you go back over into Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9 when Moses is telling them it's not because of how good you are that God is giving you the land. They never learned that lesson. I mean, even later on, that, that was one of the prime things behind their, their prejudice. And we were talking this morning in class about... Uh, Simon Peter going to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And they, they just wouldn't do it. You know, in the Jewish mind, it's you're either one of us 
or you're one of everybody else and everybody else doesn't count. If you're not a Jew, you're nothing. And they had that prejudice in their mind. We are God's chosen people. We're better than everybody else. And God had been trying to tell them from the very start that that was not the case. Yes, he, they were his people, but because that was the line that the Messiah was going to come from. That's one of the reasons that, that God protected them as long as he did. Not because they were so good, because they never were. Even Hezekiah, the reformer, 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 8, Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. And they wouldn't do it. And that's one of those things, you know, sometimes, uh, I, I don't know if, if you're the same way that I am, but uh, sometimes you look at some of the things that happen, whether you're talking about things uh, in Scripture or whether you're talking about things that happen to other people uh, that don't have anything to do with religion, but you look at them and you see something happen, and you say, well, I would have never done that. You know, there, I, I'm smarter than that. I, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, I know I wouldn't have. Well, the truth of the matter is we can't say that. I mean, really and truly, we can't. You know, sometimes we see somebody do something wrong and we say, I would never find myself in a position where I would do that. And you can hope that that's true. But then again, if circumstances were different, if a few things had been uh, different in your earlier life, you might find yourself in the same condition. You know, we can say, I'll try my best not to do that. But to say that we won't, you know, we can't really do that. And as soon as you start saying you won't, be careful because you might. And the Hebrew writer kind of points that out when he's talking about the Jews as a people and us. In uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. One of the interesting things about this passage is the fact that unbelief and disobedience are tied together. He's using the terms almost interchangeably. If you don't obey, it's because you don't believe. And it doesn't matter how much you say you do. There are, are, are people all over the religious world who will claim that Jesus is their personal savior. You have an awful lot of people out there who will sing, oh, how I love Jesus. And they won't do what he says. You know, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Now, in that context, he's pointing out some potential inconsistency. But the fact remains that when you, when you look at people in the religious world today, there are a lot of people out there who claim Jesus is their Lord. He's my personal Savior. And then they won't do what he says. And what that does is that gives lie to what they said. Because if you're not obedient, it's because you really don't believe. And that's what the, that's what the Hebrew writer is saying here. <clears throat> you know, Jesus made the, the statement that if, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. So again, somebody's saying, oh, how I love Jesus. They don't if they're not doing what he said to do. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. 
you know, the first chapter of, of, of uh, 1 John tells us, he says, if we, he's talking about Christians, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's saying, yes, Christians make mistakes. Yes, Christians sin, but it's not a habit of life. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. If you walk in the light, that's your habit of life. You do make mistakes, but it's your attitude toward the mistakes that you make that, that really is the determining factor. You know, do you say, I should not have done that. That was wrong. And you, you tell God, I know what I did. You know, sometimes we, we think about it that, you know, why should I have to go to God in prayer and confess my sins to him? And John says that, that that's what we should do there in 1 John chapter 1. If we are faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Why do I have to confess my sin? God already knows what I did. God already knows what my heart is. The prayer is not for God's benefit, it's for mine. Because what that does, when, when I recognize my sin and I confess it to God, I can't hide from it. I can't refuse to admit to myself that I made a mistake. I'm acknowledging it. And that was the real difference between David and King Saul. You know, in King Saul, I, I love 1 Samuel chapter 15, where he's supposed to have gone and, and killed the Amalekites. And he comes back and Samuel says, you know, you didn't do what God told you to do. I'm paraphrasing. And Saul says, yes, I did. He said, no, you didn't. Oh, yes, I did. He said, well, if you did what God told you to do, why are all these animals here? Why is this man here? Oh, well, I did most of what God told me to do. And then it was, well, the people made me do it. It's not my fault. And then it was, well, we didn't do what God said to do, but we did what we did for a good reason. And Samuel tells him, no, you didn't. Sacrifice is one thing. Obeying the voice of the Lord is another. You didn't obey. Now, Saul would, would use every excuse in the book to hide his sin, <clears throat> When Nathan pointed out David's sin, he said, I've sinned. He didn't try to weasel out from under it. He said, yes, I did it. So he had admitted that what he had done was wrong. Now, in the case of the Hebrew writer and, and the, the Jews, he says, verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 3, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, this is going into chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. He says, when you read about what happened to them, make personal application of it. Because it could happen to you. You could be in the same boat. So he says, use their wrongs as, as, as a, uh, an example so that you don't do the same thing problem is it's very difficult to learn from the example of other people it's almost impossible really for a lot of people because if we were capable of learning from other people's example there's a lot of wrong things we wouldn't do problem oftentimes is we don't even learn from our own mistakes but what the Hebrew writer is saying is that we need to humble ourselves before God and do what God tells us to do the problem is is that there are a lot of people who don't want to be submissive. They don't want to put themselves in subjection to anything or anyone else. And I, I firmly believe that that's uh, the cause uh, of a lot of so-called atheism 
uh, read an interesting article in the uh, uh, Reason and Revelation from Apologetics Press just the other day talking about uh, texts in the Bible that atheists use to say, well, the Bible made me an atheist because of what it says here. They're lying. If they were honest, if they were sincere, they'd read those things and they would properly interpret them, but they don't. Most atheists are not atheists because they feel they have to be that way. They're that way because they don't want to do what God says do. And that's it. You know, if, if God tells me to do these things and I don't want to, God tells me not to do these things and I want to. So either I have to change or I have to get rid of God. I don't like to change, so I'm going to get rid of God. And that's why they call themselves an atheist. I don't believe that they really, really are deep down. <clears throat> but many people don't want to submit. They don't want to bow their head under the yoke. Over in John chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 31, said, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will, shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? The Jews in their conversations with Jesus have been guilty of making a lot of really foolish comments. They said a lot of really silly things, but if there is one worse than this one, I don't know what it is. If they know anything about their nation's history, they would know better than to say, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. They spent 400 years in Egypt in bondage. In the book of Judges again, they were in bondage time after time after time to their enemies. They spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. And right now, these people that are talking to Jesus wouldn't have had to gone very far to find a Roman soldier. And they're going to say, we have never been in bondage to anyone. That's silly. That doesn't make any sense at all. But the fact of the matter is, they just did not want to be in bondage. They said it because they wanted it to be true. And we do that. We convince ourselves of things that are not true because that's the way we want them to be. I've said to people from time to time, I said, a day is not complete without a good rationalization. And by rationalization, I mean that we, we talk ourselves into something or we talk ourselves out of it. You know, I really didn't want to do that in the first place, so I'm going to come up with some kind of reason that says that I don't have to do that. Uh, Marsha and Cheryl and I have got, got a, uh, a phrase that we use a lot now, and it's talking about the otter. You know, people used to talk about having a monkey on your back. Well, we talk about having an otter on your back because the otter is telling us that we ought to do this or that. You know, we feel like we need to, but we really don't want to, but we feel like we ought to. So sometimes we end up with the otter on our back. The people will talk themselves into or out of almost anything. People do that religiously speaking all the time. You know, I don't really want to do what God says to do, so I've got to find a good reason not to do it. The religious world is full of people like that. Well, that's just not really that important. Or, oh, I think the preacher's being too strict about that. I just don't really see where that's all that necessary. Or I don't feel like I really have to do that. I don't feel like that's a big deal. I don't feel it's important, so I'm not going to do that. It's not, a, not an issue. We talk ourselves into and out of things all the time. 
And the sad fact of the matter is, is we can continue doing that until this life is over. And then it's too late. You know, one of the, one of the things about this, and I, I, I love irony. Uh, I, I like to see things that turn out exactly the opposite of the way somebody wants them to be. Uh, the book of Jonah, I think, is a really good example of that. Uh, I don't know about you, but used to, <clears throat> I thought Jonah was running away from Nineveh because he was afraid. And that's not the case at all. You get farther into the book of Jonah, you find out the reason Jonah was running away from Nineveh is because he thought they might actually repent. And he didn't want them to. You know, when you get there at the end, when he's sitting up on the hillside watching the city to see if God's going to destroy it or not, and the people have repented all the way from the king on down, Jonah, in essence, says to God, see, I told you this was going to happen. He was running away from Nineveh because he didn't want the people to repent. He wanted them to be destroyed. But his act of running away may very well have been what caused them to listen to him when he came into the city of Nineveh and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. I mean, if you think about it, why would they listen to him? You know, why listen to this guy who just comes in randomly and starts telling you that the, your city is going to be destroyed in 40 days? Very possibly, at least I believe it is, that they heard what happened to him. About him being thrown overboard, about him being swallowed by the sea creature and then, and then coughed up three days later alive and when they heard about that it's you know uh, we might ought to listen to him so it, it's very possible that Jonah's act of trying to thwart the will of God is what actually helped bring it about uh, I, I love that sense of irony and one of the things that is really ironic uh, at least in my mind is that there are a lot of people out there who are stiff-necked people. They don't want to yield. They don't like the idea that they are in subjection to anyone. They don't want to submit to anyone. And in, in our country as, especially, we have kind of a culture of that. You know, we're rugged individualists. Nobody can make us do anything. We don't want to submit. We don't want to be in subjection. And the ironic part of it is, is that we are. You know, the, the, the word slave has a, a, a negative connotation, and understandably so. But the fact of the matter is, is each and every accountable person is one. We are under the yoke, whether you like to believe it or not. Now, over in Romans chapter 6, or Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, oh, back up, I'm in Romans chapter 6. I'll get in the right place here in just a second. But in Romans chapter 6, in verse 15, Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. The grace of God cleanses us from sin, but he says you don't want to live in it. You don't want to practice it. But he says, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. 
And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God be thanked, you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form or that pattern of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having then, the King James says, been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You were a slave of sin, and now you're a slave of righteousness. And you moved from one state to the other one by obeying from the heart a pattern of doctrine that was given to us. We are a slave. The thing about it is, is we get to choose. Now, a lot of slaves didn't get to choose who they were going to be in subjection to. That wasn't left up to them. They became slaves because somebody made them that way. Or maybe they were born into that state. We get to choose. But you are a slave. You are under the yoke. There's nothing we can do about that one way or the other except to choose. Which one do you want to wear? Which yoke is the one that you prefer to have? Now, again, when you look back over in uh, Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We can choose the light one, or we can choose the heavy one. You know, the sad fact of the matter is, is a lot of people think that, that becoming a Christian requires too many things of us. It requires that we give up too much. It requires that we do a lot of things that we really don't want to do. And the fact of the matter is, is it's not that way. You know, Christianity can be a difficult thing, but oftentimes it's because we make it that way. Now, it's true some of the people around us can add to that, but a lot of the time it's us. You know, God does not tell us to do anything that is bad for us. He does not tell us to not do anything that is good for us. Being a Christian is one of the best things you can, you can be. You know, it's, it's good for you in so many ways. And that's why Jesus said that his yoke was easy. His burden was light. That's the one to take. It's going to be good for you now and even better later. But taking on the yoke of sin, that's just exactly the same kind of thing that, that uh, was pointed out in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 48, a yoke of iron, difficult servitude. And that's what the devil requires of you. So which yoke do you want to wear? Do you want to wear the yoke of Christ that's easy? Or would you prefer to wear Satan's yoke instead? One or the other. Don't have a choice other than that. And it's our choice to make. It may be that there's someone here this morning that needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you could come forward this morning confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. Or it may be that there's someone here who's an erring child of God. If so, you need to go to God in prayer. Confess your sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you. And he's promised to do that. Or it could be that there's someone here who just needs to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing?